Thank you all for being here today. It's good to see you. It's good to be back with you on this glorious Sunday. Let me welcome you once again to worship at Newland First United Methodist Church. Mickey and I have been at the Georgia Pastor School this past week down at Epworth by the Sea on St. Simons. Somebody has to go down there and suffer for a while every summer, so <laughs> we volunteer for that. We had a great time. We had some children and grandchildren around and uh, just had a wonderful week, but it's good to be back with you. And it was good yesterday to come home and know that this is our home, to walk into a house where the cardboard boxes are all gone and the pictures are all hung and it just feels like home. And you all have been so gracious to make us feel welcome and at home in this place. And we are finding our way around the church and around the community and just look forward to a long time here to get to know you and for you to know us and for us together to see what what God is up to in this place, in this community. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I did see earlier two of my dear friends walk in. James and Ann Manuel are here. Uh, Ann was my our accompanist in my years at Jonesboro First UMC, and James was in the sound booth most Sundays. And But our families go way back, and uh, it's good to see you folks. Thank you. They reside in Sharpsburg now and uh, not far away, and it's always Good to see familiar faces, and uh, your faces are becoming more familiar every week, and I'm grateful to God for that. Last week, really two weeks ago, when I was in the Connect service, began a summertime series of sermons called Messages That Matter from the Mind of Matthew, using the lectionary gospel passage year A from the Gospel of Matthew this summer. And uh, last Sunday, we took a passage from Matthew 13, And we continue in Matthew 13 this Sunday. It's a chapter full of parables. And so we move a little further along with the parable by Jesus and then an interpretation later. So we're in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and then 36 through 43, which is the interpretation of the parable. So I would ask you now to please stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then with verse 36 and following, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. He put before them another parable. And they walked all around it with their hands stuffed in their pockets and gazed at it intently. A couple of them raised the hood, began to point and shake their heads knowingly like they really understood what made the thing go. One arm kicked the tires. Another one examined the exhaust pipe. Still another one opened the driver's side door, sat down behind the wheel, checked out the headroom and adjusted the steering wheel and looked at all the buttons and knobs and gadgets. Here's the keys, he said. Drive it home and, and show it to your wives. Check out the way it feels on the open road. And remember I told you it was only driven to church on Sunday once. Folk there didn't appreciate it or they didn't understand it. So the owner took it home, parked it in the garage, and there it stayed until day four yesterday. Matthew chapter 13, several parables, two parable interpretations. We mentioned that last week. It's been called a land of parables. The verb translated to hear or to listen occurs 16 times in this parable-heavy, parable-laden chapter. It could be said then, don't you think, that to hear or listen goes hand in hand with the function, the presence, the, the purpose of a parable. And we said last week that a parable means to lay alongside of, so that there might be comparison, so that there might be things revealed and, and some things concealed. The parable, or the nature of the parable, is that it cannot be seen or heard directly or head on. You kind of have to catch it from from the side or indirectly. A parable's been compared to a faint cry in the distance. And you turn your head just a little bit and you listen. And you think maybe you heard something, but you're not sure exactly what it was. So for the past several days, this parable that we read this morning has been just sort of laying there on my desk, staring up at me. I've tried to have a conversation with it, and I hope I've heard some of what it was trying to say. But understanding the parable is not like buying a used car. It's not that direct. You can't kick the tires and check it out. You have to to just listen and have a little patience. So I hope we've got our hearing ears on today as we listen to this parable one more time and, and think about it and maybe hear what it has to say to us. And let me say up front and, and be honest with you up front, this parable bothers me a little bit. Some of the things that I hear and see when I read this parable and think about it are a little troublesome, a little different from, from things I've always thought or things I've understood. My traditional understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to challenge or to face evil in this world, those things are are messed with a little bit in this parable. Maybe we need to think about it a little differently, look at it a little differently, perhaps not throw out all that we've known and heard about it, but to listen. And maybe there's something else here. When I think about this parable, 
An old hymn came to mind, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching As to War with the Cross of Jesus Going On Before. And we, we sing that song and we have an image, we have a picture of what it looks like for God's people, for God's church to confront evil in this world today, individually and together at his, as his church. And I've always pictured it that way, you, me, us, the church, as followers of Christ going forth to do battle to to engage in war and conflict with the forces of evil in this world to attack evil to evict evil and to eventually destroy evil but then along comes this parable and i have to say oh my maybe maybe i haven't heard it all just right this parable whispering to me at first And later shouting at me when it comes to confronting evil, leave the weeds alone. Let them be. Quit trying to pull them up. Not your job. Who do you think you are? Anyway, now what? Are we cape crusaders? Are we masked avengers? Are we men and women of steel locked in mortal combat with the forces of evil in this world wanting to triumph and overcome them? Or are we stalks of wheat? I mean, given a choice, what would you rather be? Superhero or a plant? So let's get nitpicky with this story, with this parable for just a minute. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sold good seed in his field. But while he was asleep, someone came along and an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. The first thing I thought about, one of the first questions I had was, why would the owner sow the seed? Doesn't this owner have employees or servants or in that day slaves to do this kind of work? Was there something so special, so extraordinary about this good seed that it had to be entrusted only to the care of the owner? And no one else could scatter it, could sow it in the field. And why? Would an enemy sow weeds among the wheat? That just sounds strange to me. It sounds odd. I admit it last week when we were looking at another parable about seeds and soils and things that, that I grew up in the city. I don't have much of an agricultural background. So some of this is a little strange to me, but why would an enemy sow seeds? You would think there was an easier way or a better way to get revenge on your enemy, to get back at somebody who had harmed you, why would you sow weeds in their field? That seems like a lot of work and just seems weird. But according to one scholar, that was a pretty common practice back in that day, to get even with somebody who had harmed you or hurt you. If you had a grievance with them, then you you slip out under the cover of darkness. You scatter weeds, seeds in their field and... It grows up with the wheat. It was forbidden in ancient Roman law. It was a tough thing. It still happens, I understand, in some places in the world. That's a pretty mean-spirited way to get back at someone. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the servants, the slaves, the employees go to the, the master, the owner of the field. Should we go out and pull up the weeds? And uh, they also ask him, by the way, where'd these weeds come from? Didn't you sow good seed? Didn't you sow wheat? And 
what's going on? Should we pull up the weeds? And the owner answered, no, because in the pulling up of the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat. You might damage the crop. Let them grow together at harvest time. I'll instruct those who gather the harvest to bundle up the weeds and toss them into the furnace, and the wheat will be gathered into my barn. And then strangeness creeps into the parable once again. One of the biblical scholars that I've most admired over the years and have relied on his work and his insight, he died a couple of years ago, Fred Craddock, said that it was not unusual. In fact, it was common practice in that day and time for the farmer to send folks out to pull the weeds up once or maybe even twice while the wheat was growing. So what's going on here? Later, the disciples would ask for and receive an explanation for what this parable was all about. You remember last week's parable about the sower and the seeds and the different kinds of soil. All We mentioned that Jesus tells the parable and then asked the question, was it Jesus or was it Matthew interpreting the parable for his church and his day and the explanation? So we've got a similar setup. Parables normally have only one main point. Allegories, everything in the story stands for something or means something else. But that seems to be the way this interpretation goes, so we're just going to flow with that for a little bit. Verses 36 through 43, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ. The field is the world. The seed, the good seed, are the children of God. The enemy is the devil. The weeds are the children of the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers, those who come together in the harvest, they're the angels. So, now we know who all the players are. The old saying is you cannot tell the players, you cannot name the players without a program, so that's who the players are. But we still don't really know why. In the parable itself, the landowner wouldn't let the slaves go ahead and pull up the weeds. There may be some danger to the wheat, but if that was a common practice... So allow me, if you will, to suggest three possible explanations. There may be more. I'm sure there are more. Here are some that came to mind. First, such an attempt would have been premature and would have reflected the impatience of those who wanted to pull up the weeds. Impatience. If gratitude, as we mentioned in one of the prayers, is one of our crowning virtues, impatience is one of our crowning vices, so to speak. We want it now. We want it our way. Lynn Sweet said there are no perfect fields. Every crop of wheat must learn to live with the weeds. Think about that for a little while. And then Douglas Hare and his commentary on this passage had a really interesting observation, or I thought it was, maybe you will. He said that the separation in the story is graciously postponed Is it possible that some of the weeds might become wheat? If in our enthusiasm to fight evil by pulling up the weeds, we deny the weeds an opportunity to be transformed into wheat by the grace of God, then maybe we've done the weeds a grave disservice. And it made me start thinking about how quickly in the church, we forget that we serve a God who through Jesus Christ has the power to transform a human heart. 
Folks don't have to stay like they are. And are there people in our lives that we've written off, that we've ignored, that we've turned our backs on because of their lifestyles and their behaviors, all the while forgetting that Jesus Christ has the power to transform a human heart? And maybe that's part of our story, part of your story, part of my story. That there are times when we could have been written off, forgetting God's power to change a human heart. Isn't that what we're all about? A second possible explanation is why the landowners wouldn't let the slaves go ahead and pull up the weeds as their usual result would be the disturbance and the loss of the faithful in seeking to uproot the unfaithful. The roots of the wheat the roots of the weeds would become entangled oftentimes. And you couldn't pull up one without pulling up the other. Zinzania was the Greek word for weeds. It's an annual grass, and it looks a lot like wheat. And when it's sown with the wheat and they grow up together, it's hard to tell the difference. So you might pull up the wrong stuff. Wheat and weeds, like good and evil, often look a lot alike. We're not always able to distinguish between the two. And when we make judgments about others that we are not qualified to make, then we might just do more harm than good. Third reason for the landowner's reluctance to allow his slaves to go ahead and weed his wheat wheat patch is simple. It was not their job, not their responsibility. It was his as the owner. The task of judging between good and evil does not belong to us, but it belongs to our God and to his Christ. Matthew's gospel is full of references to Jesus Christ as the judge. And let me mention just a couple of those. Chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is to come with all of his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. And then chapter 25 and verse 31 and 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. I can't hear that passage without my mind going back to my high school math teacher. I know that sounds strange. At Sylvan Hills High School in Atlanta, Ruth Rogers was her name. She was one of the first ordained United Methodist clergywomen in in our conference in this part of the world. But at the time, she did not have a church. They said she could be conference evangelist, which is a really great sounding title, but, well, there was no paycheck. So she was teaching school. And she was my algebra teacher and my geometry teacher. And... uh, She used a lot of biblical expressions in the classroom. And when it was time for a test, she would always stand up before she handed out the test and she would say, brothers and sisters, this one is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And uh, most days I found myself somewhere seated at the left hand of Sister Ruth. The sheep and the goats, 
the judgment. Jesus is the judge. Look again at that explanation of the parable that Jesus gives, especially verse 38. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. That's us. We ought to be encouraged by that. We ought to be lifted up by that. We are the good seed. We should be called. We are called to be to be the children of God, to, to carry out God's work in this world. We're not the slaves. We're not the reapers. We're not the hired hands. We are the good seeds, the wheat. Our job, as I'm hearing it in this parable, our responsibility is not to go around pulling up weeds, but being the best wheat we can be. I know that Pulling up weeds can be fun. My mother thought it was fun. She used to go out in the yard after a rain and pull up weeds. She thought that was the greatest thing in the world. She said, they're just so easy to pull up after it's rained. This was back in the days before cell phones. And she called me one day and said, I've fallen. I'm sitting down in the front yard and I can't get up. You think you can come over here and help me? And uh, she had the house phone with her. (laughs) And I said, what are you doing sitting down in the yard? She said, I was pulling up weeds. So we, we got her up and got her going. Pulling up weeds or something feels good about that. We're going to get rid of those stinking weeds. And we pull them up. We get them out of the way. We let the grass and the other things grow. But we're not called to do that, are we? So look at that explanation again. Our job is to be wheat. So how can we be wheat? How can we be the best wheat we can be? Let's think about it for just a moment. We can do that by working for reconciliation in the world in those places where we work, in our homes, and in the church. Work for reconciliation, for for bringing folks together. When difficulties arise, and when difficulties arise even in the church, it's easy to talk behind folks instead of talking to folks. And sometimes things get heated, and sometimes there's confrontation. Jesus left some instructions for how we are to be wheat when difficulties come into our lives, when conflict comes into our home or into our church. Refer to Matthew 18, verses 15 and 16. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you've regained that one. But if you're not listened to, take one or two others with you so that may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. There's a process. There are things we shouldn't do. We go about being wheat by working for reconciliation and by working for and achieving forgiveness between other folk and ourselves. Again, in our homes and sometimes where we work or go to school. It's something we have to think about often. We live in a, what has been described as a knee-jerk, sue-the-jerk kind of society. And forgiveness is difficult sometimes, especially when you've got all the, the TV attorneys who are willing to make it right for you and gain some money in the process, but forgiveness is not often mentioned. Back to Matthew 18 again in the 21st and 22nd verses, Peter came to him and said, Lord, if, a number, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? Seven times seven? Seven meant wholeness and completeness in the Bible, and Peter thought, that's pretty good, seven times seven. And Jesus said, no, 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 not seven times seven, but 70 times seven. Now, let's don't be too literal. 
If somebody sins against you 490 times, that doesn't mean you can turn their lights out when it happens the 491st time. Kingdom math is a little different from the way we do math in this world. 70 times 7 is biblical language that there is no limit to the forgiveness we ought to offer for one another because there's no limit to the grace of God and the forgiveness that is offered to us. So we go about being we by working for reconciliation, by forgiving without limitation, and by caring for those who are broken and in need in this world, even if they've gotten themselves in, the own, in their own predicament. I'm going to talk about Matthew 25 again in a moment, but in Luke 10 there's that story of the Good Samaritan, and, and we all know that story. Most everyone knows that story. What was that crazy Man doing, walking down the most dangerous road in the region by himself. He got himself in that mess, right? He ought to get himself out. That's not what the story says. We, be, we can become wheat as we love and care for folk, even those who, who harm themselves. Matthew 25 we mentioned this a while ago, the sheep and the goats, saying, The king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father. And Herod, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was sick, and you took care of me. We go about being weak by working for reconciliation, by offering unlimited forgiveness, by caring for folk who are in need and are broken and have nowhere else to turn. The writer, and then we go about, excuse me, I'm about to get ahead of myself, and we go about being wheat by learning to stand up for what's right. What's right in our life? What's right in our faith? What's right in this world? Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having done everything to stand. Stand, therefore, in God's grace and God's strength. I'm thinking now about how Jesus responded in his ultimate confrontation with evil in this world. I know it's not Lent, I know it's not Easter time, but, but let's think about that. Did Jesus, when confronted with evil, did he break stride? Did he change methods? Did he begin to pull up weeds? No. When confronted with ultimate evil in this world, Jesus stretched out his arms and his hands, and he died. And when he died... The kingdom of evil began to wilt. Now hopefully our role is clearer. As one commentator suggests, as clear as it gets when you've got a parable that's set in the dirt. Our role is to grow, to bear fruit, to be who we were created to be. In other words, to be the best wheat we can be. That's the call on our life that I hear coming through this parable. To be wheat and to be wheat well, when is the last time you saw a faithful, enthusiastic, on-fire Christian in this world caring for people and loving on people whose faithful life, whose faithful work for Jesus causes the forces of evil 
to begin to back off and to crumble. Not to be overwhelmed, not to be beat up, not to be destroyed, but to disarm evil in a mighty way with all the forces of goodness by learning to love and care for even our enemies. The most formidable opponents of the evil one in this world seldom mention the name of the evil one. Much less rant and rave and hack and spend their whole life digging at the weeds. We're called to be wheat. Nowhere in this story do I hear the call for us to become roundup. And if we have ears to hear, I believe that we can hear again in our time, in this place, God's call on our life to be the best wheat we can be. The scripture lesson ends with Jesus promising to send his angels to gather up the weeds, to bundle them up, to toss them into the furnace. Then the wheat, he said, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And the question that I want us to end with is simply this. Is that a threat or a promise? Amen.